My favourite misconception, which is probably the most popular misconception that I come across about coaching speakers and confidence and writers and confidence, is that it's something I think I have and the other person doesn't, which is not only untrue, but reminds me of the true reason that I got into it in the first place. I struggled with confidence enormously in the things that I did, and I was definitely not the most natural performer in the room in my youth theatre. What happened to me was I realised everybody else is just as scared as I am. And that's why John Paul Flintoff is one of my favourite writers and speakers, because all the incredible things he has done come from a perspective of, I am flawed, vulnerable human, you are flawed, vulnerable human, let's connect. So it's an absolute delight to have him working with me on this writing workout at the Writers' Gym today. Author, artist, speaker and performer John Paul Flintoff has worked as a feature writer for the Sunday Times, bin man, executive PA, scuba diver, taxi driver, undertaker, amateur boxer and rat catcher. He is much in demand in the corporate sector as a speaker in the areas of communication, creativity and leadership, and he is constantly hailed as energising, funny and thought-provoking, with good reason. A linguist and theatrical improviser, John Paul founded a think tank, Be Yourself in Any Language, to combine those disciplines along with neuroscience and psychology to help individuals and groups improve their communication and collaboration, even in languages they barely know. His international best-selling book, How to Change the World, draws from philosophy, psychology and world history to show that leadership is something that's available to anybody at any time. Throughout history, societies have been transformed by individuals realising that if they don't like something, they can change it. Hello. <laughs> you, hello. You. Very stressful, the, the vagaries of Wi-Fi and 4G. Anyway. It, it's... It was great in so many ways, but it just then it gives you something just to remind you how vulnerable you actually are, just so you don't start to, taking it for granted. That's my relationship yeah. with Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Love anyway, it in general. Anyway, glad to be here. Glad you are here. I've always talked about a double bluff of confidence because everybody out there, when they look at me, on a stage, on a podium, on Instagram Live, on, you know, doing a lecture, wherever I happen to be, having a conversation, everything, wherever it's happening, they are seeing someone who has experience in this thing and knows what they're talking about and all of the stuff that me, inside my own head, will find so many convincing reasons to believe is not the case as I walk out and do it. I actually had a Lambda student who's just done her grade three speaking in public say to me do you ever get nervous and it was the ever that was just delightful because the idea that it happened at all was alien and the conversation that I had with her last night was the only thing that changes is you realize it's not just you it's everyone else as well and that the feelings don't have to be the reality so where I was coming from when I started talking to you about writing and speaking and what it was that listening to you made me go, yes, hooray, was that feeling that I had when I first stepped out in front of a primary school audience doing a drama club, that as they were announcing me and I was looking at all these blank, tiny faces in the audience, sort of staring with no facial expression, and I felt more like a small child on the floor than like the teachers around the outside. And as I was walking out, that voice in my head that went, just because it feels like that in here, 
doesn't mean that's the reality that they have to see out there. And yeah. something in that moment allowed me to take time into my own hands, slow it to the speed that worked, look every single tiny blank face in the eyes and take the time to do that and then say, who knows about drama? And it wasn't that that question was so amazing. It was just that connection and realizing in the moment that it was mm. all about connection. And then of course, all the hands are going up and they're going me and we're, we're reaching each other and we're all humans talking about things that we enjoy. And it's suddenly a different world. And I'd love to know if, if there were sort of similar moments for you where these things sort of settled in, made sense. Gosh, yeah, there's so many um, where they where it has come where it's not come good, but where it's come all right. That's what I quite like to think about those moments. So there was once when I was I was doing these courses at a place called the School of Life. I was running the courses, and um, I came up with this idea of doing one on how to silence your inner critic, and they liked the idea, so I put, they put it on, sold tickets, and people turned up. And there was one woman at the front who. I'll get the details wrong, but it doesn't really matter. This is my memory of it. She said something early on about, because I asked what people wanted to get out of it. And she said, well, I hope that there'll be something new that I haven't heard before or something. But of course, I hope that will be the case. Anyway, then about halfway through or something, she said, I think it's been a real waste of time. I haven't heard anything. Now, this is a session on how to silence you in a critic. So for me, I was like really in the thick of it because it was like, oh, I'm really rubbish. This is useless. But there was a thing that happened then, and I don't quite know how to explain it, but this sort of moment of almost stepping out of myself and being kind of over here somewhere and looking looking at John Paul and thinking, oh, he's having a hard time, but he'll be all right. And separating in some way and thinking, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Maybe it isn't very good for her. And maybe it's not very original, but, you know, it might be original for someone. But it doesn't really matter too much. It's okay. And that was quite a good realisation. And then there was another time, another class I was doing there. I can't, I hope I haven't told you this before, but I, there must be someone listening who hasn't heard it before. Lots. Um, <laughs> I was doing a class on how to be confident. And you can imagine the sort of people who come to a class on how to be confident. That tells you a lot away. So it's quite a lot of... In my head, before I started, I thought it's going to be hard to get much interaction or to get them to do anything at all. So I'll start really early on with something interactive. And so I went in and I said, I'm really glad you've turned up. So this was the first thing I said, very beginning. Hi, I'm really glad you're here because I've given this a lot of thought. Something like that. It was quite innocuous. It wasn't a big show-off statement. It was, I hoped, I was aiming for, I'm interested in this and I'm keen and I'm happy to have you here. That was what I was aiming for. And then I said, okay, time out, like already time out. What do you think of the person who just said that? And what, what's your feeling about that person? And obviously these being people who turned up for a class on how to be confident, nobody wanted to put their hand up for quite a while. And yeah, there was a lot of, sort of, it's fine, take as long as you like. I'd really love to hear what you have to say, no matter how boring or inconsequential it might seem to you, just anything would be interesting. People put their hands up eventually and they were saying things like, well, actually it was, quite a good sign or you seem quite confident or I haven't wasted my money or I think um, I feel quite pleased or whatever generally sort of nice things and um, I noticed that there was only one man in the group apart from me I mean and which probably tells you something about who is willing to turn up to a class on how to be confident and he hadn't spoken so most of the people had gone around most of them I think maybe even all of them and 
no, not quite all of them, because I said something along the lines of, I don't know if there's anyone who has anything slightly different to say that, you know, we've heard a number of comments that are kind of nice, but if anyone has a slightly different take on it, I, I really welcome whatever you have to say. And eventually this, so I just stood there because I'm, you, Rachel, know I trained in improv, so I'm okay standing there and waiting for something to happen. And I said, if there is anything else, I'd love to hear it. So I'm standing there waiting, 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 and then the guy puts his hand up. I said, yes, yeah, what do you think? And and he said, well, actually, I thought you were a bit of an arrogant twat. And I, I, you know, on the face of it, that's not like a nice thing to say, but I was just so happy because what it told me was all these people saw exactly the same person. And if there was a difference, it was in them. It wasn't in me. And so I'm free. I'll just be me. I'll just be myself. And a, a large number of them will be OK with that. And one guy, actually, he was OK with it, but he had originally thought I was an arrogant twat. Probably understandable, because here I was running a course on how to be confident. Like, who would be so arrogant as to think they can do that? So I had no grievance with him, but I had a very quiet little moment of satisfaction where I was thinking, I'm so not responsible for what people think of me. I cannot make it or change it. Here are all these people who've seen largely the same but one person saying something dramatically different i simply cannot control it so i might as well just do what i want to do and which that is, was a massive relief which is so true walking down the street living your daily life as well isn't it that we can in our least confident moments reverse the healthy relationship with self sort of define it by what we think the audience is thinking but we serve the audience so much better when we have that sense of who and what we are and what we're communicating. And you're right, you know, some people are going to love it. Some people are going to yeah. hate it. But what I find so interesting, actually, about both those stories is that as well as one person sees confident twat and one person sees completely the opposite thoughtful listening person who is leading and helping this group all of those things are going to be there anyway but they're all holding up their own mirrors to themselves they're all seeing what they're ready to see hmm. and everyone is you know if if you lack confidence in yourself quite often that's going to be lacking the permission to feel confident in the self and can become thinking anyone else who does have that is therefore being an arrogant twat and quite often what you really need in that situation is to go do you know what that person is okay with knowing what they know and being who they are. And so can I mm. be and do that. So I know you can't tell me because it would be confidential, but I'm wondering what sort of process that person made who turned up to that and was at that point not ready to go beyond, hmm, he's a good, whether that did change over the process. It, yeah, it did change. And I think partly, I think people tend to experience it as a real gift when you give them the, the, the chance to say what they really think. So he'd got that off his chest and I didn't run at him with a knife or anything. It was like, I, I welcomed it. I accepted it and said, oh, right, well, thanks. That's really good to hear. I'm happy to hear whatever you have to say. And I congratulate you all on having at least enough confidence to share what you're thinking with the rest of the group. So all I really wanted to do was give them a sense that they'd achieved something within the first five minutes. So that was that was job done. So although everything that we've said so far seems very much focused on oneself, I, I try to get out of that very quickly. And what can I do to give these people a sense of their achievement in being already a little bit more confident? If I start worrying too much about 
am I good? Am I bad? Uh, I'm probably wrong if I think I'm good, and I'm probably right if I think I'm bad. So just take the focus off myself. Just focus on how can I, you used the word serve, how can I serve these people? Because, you know, not every moment of my everyday life am I serving someone. Occasionally I quite like it the other way around. But on that occasion in the class, I was serving them. They had paid to turn up. So what can I do? And it makes it so much easier, as you said at the very beginning, when you think, what am I here for to enable or help and encourage? And that's what I was there for. So just focus on what I'm here for. And you can hear so much Stanislavski in that, but both of us coming through improvisation and coming through acting, if you know what your character wants, you know how they'll say these words, how they'll do this gesture, that everything is based on an emotional truth, based on what we want. And yeah. acknowledging that one of the things that I've found enormously helpful is when we acknowledge what we want, we also acknowledge what we fear. And instead of putting the energy into pushing down, I'm not feeling this, this must go in a box over here, and all the energy that can go into pushing those feelings down, accepting those feelings, hearing those feelings, and knowing that you you do not have to treat them like they are objective facts in the world, they are feelings, they are there, but your actions can be something different yeah I'm, I'm really hearing that improvisation background and I, I was sort of hearing it in that first story as well about when you talked about looking at yourself from the outside oh John Paul's having a hard time but he's going to be okay and that going into second person is something that we do that when we're talking about moments of incredible bravery like when somebody talks about having gone back into the house to rescue a baby, houses on fire, something like that. Oh, well, you just had to do this and then you did that and it wasn't really brave. You just had to do this and that and the other. And we do that. And it is always a relationship, I think, that what we do and what we feel like we are. There's, I feel like there is a, a sort of duologue in there that um, the feelings are always there. The imposter syndrome, as it's easiest to call it, is completely, completely always there. But you still choose your actions. Yeah. 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 I, I, uh, I, as you know, I, I went through a really hard time and, and I had a breakdown. I was in psychiatric hospital and I really didn't like myself and I really didn't esteem or value myself to such a degree that forgive me for swearing and using this word, but then anyway, you can cut it, but I called myself a worthless cunt, which I wouldn't call anyone else. And why am I saying that? Because what I realized around about that time and in the long time that followed afterwards was I simply cannot afford for my own well-being to give house room to that voice of nastiness pointed at myself. Doesn't mean that I don't still see when I've done something wrong and I apologize and I go and do something about it. And, and I do make mistakes and do things wrong. And I try to see those as John Paul's made a mistake. It's like, that's not a good thing to do. I don't hate myself for it. And I think that willingness to accept, as you just mentioned, accept the feelings or accept the thoughts or whatever they are, doesn't make it easy. I mean, that acceptance can still feel really painful because for about a year and a half, I was still staggering around thinking, God, this is just really awful and painful. And I hate the whole thing, but I do know I'll be all right but I really hate it. So I'm really having a horrible day, but I, it's only a horrible day and maybe tomorrow will be better. So the one thing that I worry about when I tell people, you know, we can accept the horrible emotion, that might sound like it's you'll suddenly instantly feel blissful about it. No, if you're feeling really angry and upset and hurt or whatever, it's going to feel like you're boiling inside. But I learned 
that that's acceptable, that it's okay to feel that horrible feeling and it will pass. It will pass. And knowing intellectually what you can't know emotionally in the heat of the moment is a skill worth practicing, isn't it? That you can't, yeah. even when it, you know from previous experience, this feels like forever. It's actually only a very intense moment and it will pass. I know this because there have been others and it has happened before. You still can't quite know it. No. But you can put a sort of leap of faith on it. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I also try not to get too attached to the really good times. It's like, yeah, this is great. I'm loving this, but it's not going to last. It's okay, but it's not going to last. It's like tomorrow might not be so good. So I, I used to, this rather lovely woman who used to look after my daughter when she needed looking after, she doesn't need that anymore. She also ran a cake business. And every so often we would talk about our work and Prue and I would always be comparing notes on where we are on the, the roller coaster because when it's going up it feels so exhilarating and exciting and then it's like oh no but but if it's going down it means tomorrow it might be going up again so hooray so, so never knowing quite whether to to be excited that it's going down or miserable that it's going up or actually, who knows who knows just gosh this is interesting i'm on a roller coaster and with all of that the way you're talking the way that it seems to me is that you are so adjusted and so aware that feelings are something that happens is we can misdirect our energy into suppressing the feelings or over-managing the feelings rather than giving the feelings a perfectly comfortable armchair and mm. saying, I hear you, I see you, being the person mm. that reassures rather than the person that just needs the reassurance and saying, I do hear you, I can do this, I know you're just trying to protect me from failure, but I'm going to do some writing now, you just sit there, I know you're here, it's okay. Yeah. And it's it's something I think we only learn by going through yeah i think so and that's scary and upsetting at the time often but not always happily it can sometimes be brilliant it's so worth it yeah it's so worth it i mean we're saying that coming through things it's certainly at the worst times of my life you know mid mid all kinds of things i would not have been sitting there going this is going to be really useful when i'm coaching in 10 years time you don't go i want these things no you don't but, but they then, do bring rewards in their own time. And they do make us into people who are better at then helping other people. And that is a kind of worth it. Yeah. You'll absolutely find where you're going. And I think that, again, that was something with improvisation. And again, because we, we do have that shared background that before the thing I'd mentioned to you that happened in that assembly, aged about, I suppose, 13-ish, in my youth theatre as an incredibly shy teenager who really did feel like everybody else had got the memo on how you interact with other people and you know I'd been absent that day really really had all of those feelings at the time just didn't get it or felt I didn't get it and it was an improvisation circle so everybody's standing around in the circle and it was one of those ones where you had a bit of furniture so there was a desk there was a chair there was maybe something else like a coat stand there was always a coat stand God knows why. I bet that doesn't happen now. Nobody's going to know what a coat stand is, but there would have always been a coat stand. But anyway, I go into the circle and I just have this, again, it was a phrase that just landed in my head. I have as much right to be here as anyone else. And that just landed in my head. And I have no idea what the scene was about. Don't remember that at all. But I remember sitting down on that chair, putting one foot on the desk, and I can still feel myself doing this, putting the other foot on that foot leaning back, talking to whoever I was talking to, 
and something clicked and I think what I realized through improvisation was even if you're not always ready for it you do have a choice that those feelings and the actions they are not the same thing yeah so I, I feel like theatre put me on a really good path that although I don't work in theatre anymore although I left theatre to finish my PhD and I work with public speakers and you know there's all of this stuff going on it's mainly writing I still feel like what happened with what was mainly an improv training but was was acting with Stanislavski naturalistic theatre was a really good foundation for realizing that we are not our feelings there's that lovely quote about you know that you're the most useful thing you can think is that you're not your feelings you're the person who hears them yeah and yeah. I think was it was it similar for you do you feel like improvisation was a good way into or or a was that similarly helpful for you in yeah. how you think about I, things? I, I suppose I would just add to that because you've already said mm. what I what I might have said myself so yeah I'd say yes to that and see what I did there I would say that one of the things I really got from impro was an awareness that I'm not my ideas either they're just visited upon me from who knows where I'm not responsible for my ideas they just like they come from the, the room I'm in or the people I'm talking to or I mean Keith Johnson said you might as well say God put them in your head because whether you believe in God or not that will do that will, and so I really went with that I thought that was a great way of separating myself out from any responsibility for my ideas like oh look here's an idea it's just come John Paul's way and so therefore I don't I don't have to feel precious or or big-headed about them either it's like oh what am I going to do with that and my ideas I suppose acquire a certain kind of flavor because I'm who I am and my I don't know my neurons have formed in a certain way after a number of years so I'm likely to have many of the same flavor for some reason but for whatever reason I have these ideas and I'm not particularly attached to them and that that ability to step out and look at myself and say oh John Paul's having a hard time that was a an impro thing because I'm always trying to keep an eye on like what's the audience making of this and what am I making of it and what are the other people on stage making of this in an un in not in a not in an anxious, self-conscious way, but a, but a general sort of an awareness and a, and a playful, this is interesting, like, what are they going to say about this? Or look at their faces, or, ooh, what, what next? I just found Impro to be an absolute revelation. And one of the other things that, coming back to what I think we've sort of circled around without particularly naming, is the very familiar feeling of neediness. I've got to make them like me, I've got to make them want, what I've got or something and there was this brilliant moment when Keith Johnson was training us and I didn't know I didn't have the vocabulary or the or the right spectacles to see it but he could see that the people on stage although they looked like they were doing a really good job and everything he could see that they were being a bit needy they kind of wanted us to like it more than was necessary or maybe healthy so he said just can you just be a tiny bit more boring and as an instruction that was such a gift because they just tried a bit less they were a bit more boring they slowed down they weren't and just looked so much more natural and pleasing and the idea that we could just try to be a bit more boring don't try to be interesting don't try to be interesting you're either interesting or you're not interesting you're an arrogant twat or you're whatever just do your thing just let yourself do it 
Yeah, no, just, that's so lovely to hear because that is literally one of my five first draft commandments that I wrote in your creative oh, writing toolkit great. is never aim for being interesting, always aim for being interested yeah. and be more yeah. boring is a great yeah. way into that, Yeah, that you let it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you talked about the interested thing. That was another revelation. He, he sent us on stage and everyone's in the bubble of am I being good and therefore not being very interesting or watchable and having no relationship with anyone else because they're so in their own head and he said you know what makes people interesting and we're going no like what tell us because that's the secret source what are we supposed to do he said just be really interested in the other people on stage with you so then we we're all going oh really oh do you oh right and like absolutely fascinated by each other and it became this kind of loving of fascinating people that's really interesting to see that. I feel like if I if I do have a magic word to myself in terms of how I operate, it is to do with that. It is to do with the message, not the messenger. That rather than be overawed by your idler course and the books that I've read and the broadsheets and the books and everything, what I did was I went the reason I like all that stuff is I agree with all that stuff. And the reason I want to have this conversation is that I am interested in these things and I agree with them. And when you do that with somebody, then you allow yourself to connect as a human. Whereas if you go quick, find a pedestal and stop yourself from having a human to human conversation, then you've missed why you're there in the first place. I think that's probably the message I would shoot back 10 years, 20 years to my previous self is It's not that there's any less respect of all the things. It's more that, yes, those are true. But in order for them to be true, what's more importantly true is there is a human being there who is probably every bit as insecure as you are yourself and that that is what it's like to be a human being. And if you don't acknowledge that, then you miss all the fun. Yeah. Oh, God, totally. Not to connect with someone as a human being. We're a devastating waste of time. Have you had the experience... And I, now I'm not going to quite remember whether I have or not. I think I have. I mean, I've been a journalist and I met lots of famous people, but but then it was because they were famous and they knew that I was the journalist. Who, so that didn't count. That was a bit more pedestally. But I have had experiences where afterwards I was informed that someone I was getting on with was really famous. And it's like, oh, they were really nice because I had no idea that they were famous. So we just had a nice chat or whatever it was. It probably wasn't very much. And I don't want to make too big a claim for this, but... When you don't know that someone's famous, unless they are in the midst of having a bad time in their life and being a bit of a tosser, Mm. then they're not going to try and correct you and say, don't you know who I am? They're just going to be normal and probably quite pleased to connect with a human being. So, yeah, totally, Mm. definitely. (laughs) And this comes to another thing, which is, um, is is okay? this kind of free moving? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. um, Another thing that kind of combines the sort of interest in storytelling and writing and theatre, that that stuff, with the sort of slightly more therapeutic conversation that we've touched on, um, is the way that we project onto other people. And yes, we do that to celebrities. We think, yeah, I've got to imagine that they're on a pedestal. But also we can do it with everyone else. We can project that so-and-so. I had a job once. as One of the things I did as a journalist was getting jobs and doing the job, like, for real. So I was a real bin man and I was a real taxi driver and I was a real window cleaner on Canary Wharf, then the tallest building in West Europe. I did it outside. Anyway, I did these things. And one of the things I noticed in those kind of rather, as it were, 
I think you know what I mean, humble traits and so on. I really noticed that people just looked through me like I was nothing. And that's because they were projecting something onto me, even if they didn't notice me. They were noticing the outfit and they were thinking, not worth talking to. I remember being really crushed as a taxi driver when a girl, she was probably younger than an adult. I mean, she was late teens or something. She was in the back of my car and she said, no, no, I can talk. I'm, I'm, I'm on my own. I thought, no, you're not. Like, I'm like, what am I, like, not a human being? Like, how can you say that? Of course, I understand what she was driving at, but I really noticed how people project different things onto you. And like that guy who thought I was an arrogant twat, he was projecting that onto me. And we all do it, and it's completely normal and understandable. And if we didn't have projections and assumptions, we'd have to keep on asking ourselves, is this a human being I see before me? And that would just, it would just take too long to get anything done. So we do have assumptions, we do have stereotypes, and they save us a bit of time. But if we can catch ourselves in the act of using them and just wonder whether they're on the right track or not, that helps a lot. And, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about the thing I said about interesting. If you imagine that you're just playing interested, you then become interested. So it's a decision to project interest onto that other person like, now i find them really interesting like wow they weren't a moment ago but now they're like wow so we can make all these decisions and, and we actually transform the people that we're with i do this with all sorts of people when i'm running impro workshops i did it with management consultants and, and only about two days later with long-term sex offenders in a prison in scotland mm. and the behavior was just the same obviously because they're all human and one of the things that i did in this game was to have participants choose one of the others is maybe we did this on that workshop that go on though because not everyone will have been there no, no. well i'll explain anyway yeah. so you i asked four participants to come up and they have to look at each other and they have to imagine that one of them is known to be you know violent at parties one of them could get them a raise and one of them is just terribly funny so we'll forget the other two for the moment because the main thing is if you are seeing this through as any kind of an amateur performer if you have decided that this person is tremendously funny, then whatever comes out of their mouth, you just laugh a lot. And then they become funny. You've made them funny because they start thinking, yeah, whatever I say is quite funny. So they just like say things and everyone laughs and they become really confident in their humour and that's how it works. It's um, the introduction to Mother Night, I think. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. Mm. And use, using that, choosingly is not a word. What's the word that I can't think of? I like choosingly. Choosingly, yeah, I I want that's that to great. be a word. Right, that's has the it, word. It's now spread that through the world. It's been recorded, hasn't it? It, it is, yes. It get into the OED very, very soon. It's so much better than deliberately. Choosingly. Yeah. Choosingly. Right, consider that invented. Well done. I'm now going to look up and find that somebody else already has, which will annoy me enormously. But well, that's what nobody ever really has an original idea. So no, and that's so liberating in itself, isn't it? That another of the five first draft commandments is there may be seven basic plots, or three, or twelve, depending on who you're listening to. But there are infinite original voices. Yeah. Hence, you need to be interested. You need to yeah. wonder what's around the next corner, rather than make sure that everybody agrees with you about what you're doing and then your edits will be meaningful at the end yeah. and it's yeah. so important to make those choices one of the things that i i do with the writer's gym and the reason it's called the writer's gym yeah. is the writing workouts and because you and i both work in writing and speaking i'd love to sort of think aloud 
about yes. what what you feel would be a good writing speaking or both workout around some of the things that we've been talking about I've said this to you but I'm gonna say it yeah. again so for, yeah. for those who have just tuned in that one of the most useful things an editor ever said to me was the phrase say the thing which cut through all of the subconscious or unconscious wish to get the whole thing out there give lots of detail show them I could write do a really good job you know all really really good intentions that result in quite a lot of prose yeah. And what Ariel Fisher, who was at Fangoria at the time, said was say the thing. And it was so liberating. And it allowed me to recognize what it was that my insecurities can make me do. And you had a similar experience to that phrase and that you had a similar experience, didn't you, with, with that idea? I did. And it's funny that you mentioned that because only yesterday I was working with someone on a piece of writing that he had produced and I came up with a concept that was a bit like this can you just remind me what it was that I said to you I, I can don't try it up with that one okay I can was it try about the monster I don't think so but let's make sure that we get both in okay um, maybe the same thing but with a different name it was to do with um name I think it was just name, oh, name the thing the emotion yeah. in front of the audience or this yeah, is yeah, awkward oh was it the story about the audience that were uncomfortable yes but do both do the monster okay. as well <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And they are clearly related. Uh, so again, a story from, so yesterday I was working with this man on a writing project. It was very early draft. So it's no surprise that it's not how it will be. How could it be? But what I suspected might have been happening, and he thought maybe that was roughly correct, was that I thought he was maybe just putting down a lot of words in order to, subconsciously, in order to accumulate a lot of words so that I'm a writer because I've done a lot of words. So there was a lot of flannel that wasn't really getting anywhere. And so I told him this story about how, again, going back to training with Keith Johnson and Impro, about engaging the monster. So I'll tell you the monster story first and then, and then do the other one about name the thing. So Keith sent two of us up on stage in front of an audience. So there's a lot of anxiety about, am I going to be good and all that stuff. And he said, just go and have an adventure, go into the woods and you'll find a monster and have an adventure and we had one sentence each so one of us would say we walk into the woods and then the other one would say we walk past a pine tree or whatever and so then the other one takes over so we're collaboratively building this story as we go into the woods and what he noticed and I think I was in the audience actually I don't think I was one of the ones doing it but it doesn't really matter what he noticed was that the pair were just killing time and what we really wanted was to meet a monster that's what the audience wants the audience wants to meet the monster the pair don't want to humiliate themselves and do something weird and they don't want to run out of story either. So they do everything they can to procrastinate and basically nothing happens and it's really boring. We all know that you've got to engage the monster. So Keith said something like, look, this is fine and everything, but you're sort of killing time. Just get on with it and meet the monster now. And the fear is that if you meet the monster and it eats you up, that's the end of the story. So he said, well, let's try that. So the monster comes along eats us up and he says now what happens we're inside this monster's stomach and we're fighting our way out of its bum okay right so then what happens so you come out of the bum and then you kill the monster so there's never an end of the story you, you just keep building the story but don't not meet the monster because then there's no story so engage the monster is one of the things that i really got i thought don't procrastinate and come up with some boring old crap just do the thing that's really exciting and then there'll be another one around the corner. Just pr I promise you, an idea will land in your head. Like I said, it just will come. 
And if it doesn't, that's just because you're not you're not letting it. You're getting in the way because you're trying to be good. So just let it come. It will come when it's ready. So that's the engage the monster. And then the other thing is similar. It's about naming the thing. So I think I told you a story back when I was in psychiatric hospital. I had an appointment. It was, was that one. Okay, I had an appointment that I'd already been paid to do a talk at a corporate AGM 200 miles away. And I'd only barely come off what nobody calls officially, nobody calls suicide watch. And so it's kind of they were keeping an eye on me. And I said to my psychiatrist that I had to go and do this talk in Sheffield. And, you know, I'd been paid and she said, oh, I don't. And I said, no, no, it's really, it's okay. I'm more worried about not being, about having to give the money back than about doing the talk. But I was really anxious and I was very, very fragile. And I left the hospital and I went to the station and I was scared of the ticket machines. I was scared of the train. I was scared of getting it wrong. I was scared of getting the wrong seat. Was, everything was scary. But I got there and then I turned up at this conference centre and there was the company and I went in. Okay. When the time came, I went into the auditorium where the AGM had been going on for a while because it was roughly nearly time for me to do my thing. And um, I looked around the auditorium and it had this sort of raked seats quite high. So, in this, and I mentioned that because it felt could feel a bit more intimidating, but than just you know quite low down. But these were right up in your face kind of audience. And I looked around and I thought, gosh, they're really angry. Like They really were angry. There were a lot of shouting and having a go at the board who was sitting on the stage up behind a long table, protected by the table. So I thought, well, that's interesting. That's probably the most hostile audience I've ever seen. But, you know, it's OK. I, I've just admitted myself to psychiatric hospital. This doesn't cause me any fear. This particular thing doesn't cause me fear. So happily, I had that. This has been worse, so this isn't so bad thing. And anyway, at some point I heard my name being called and I walked to the stage and I took the microphone from the person who gave it to me and I walked to the front of the stage because I don't like being defended behind a table or anything or behind a podium. I like the open connection and the engagement. And um, just as I was about to say the first words, a voice came through some speakers and said, I think we should cancel this, the speaker or have him back another day. And that, that second bit was a joke because there wasn't another day. It was a one-off, one-day AGM. So that was not... And I, Oh, who said that? So I looked behind at the at the board and they all looked rather puzzled. So then I looked forward again and the audience had that kind of iron filings thing where all the heads were turned towards this one person who had spoken and I could see instantly that he had a microphone. The light on the microphone was on. He was able to talk and use it. He must have been doing the Q&A using the mic and not only would it have been probably impossible to take the mic from him, but it would be the last thing I would want to do because that would be a, an act of violence towards an audience member you don't want to do that so I just had all this going on in my head and I hadn't said anything yet and I was okay but you know I had woken up in psychiatric hospital and I was going back to psychiatric hospital later so it was all a bit weird and I knew from impro that I can just look at the audience and just like take my time I don't have to rush so I don't know where the idea came from like I said it just landed in my brain but I realized that one of the things that is important to do is to name the thing and not to pretend that the thing doesn't exist. And the, the thing in this case was awkwardness. And so I said, well, this is awkward. And I let it hang in the air for a while because it was, it was awkward. And I just said it and I looked at the audience and I could see some of them actually like going, oh God, I can't watch. This is like, it's brilliant because audiences don't realize how visible they are, but the speaker can see them. So I could see them blanching and looking away and everything. But it was true what I said. It was awkward. Anyway, I clearly I didn't have a plan for what to do because I didn't know this was going to happen. But I said, for some reason, the idea came to me that I could say, 
we have a couple of options. It's pretty clear that at least one person doesn't want me to do the talk. And I suspect that that means there will be others who feel the same way. So either I could not do it or I could, since I've been paid and I've come all this way and I'd quite like to say it, I could just make it a bit shorter. Will you please tell me what you would like me to do? And there's this sort of big, like cheery kind of, do the talk, make it short, whatever. And so I had their permission. So two things about that. One one is that I re-engaged them and got their permission to talk because I didn't really have it once that guy had said that. And you need to have permission from your audience. So it's useful. The other thing was that I had named a thing. And I think that's why I got the permission because I hadn't bullshitted and pretending everything's really cool and I'm and I'm a great speaker and I've got to get on with this and like, be quiet, you silly man with the microphone. I hadn't tried to do that. I just accepted it. And I think that comes back to also the guy who I mentioned earlier in our conversation. He thought I was an arrogant twat. I accepted it and I didn't agree with it. I didn't say we have to go with your thoughts, but I didn't deny him the right to say it. And I think that that helps. Is that what I meant by naming the thing? Is that what I told you last? Yes. I have a couple of art and life related questions. Oh, great. On that. One of which is without wanting to put you on the spot and feel free to think about this or just say no if you want to, but. Have there been times since where that sort of life lesson or that moment has been useful where you've done it again, maybe with lower stakes or with different stakes? I don't know if this is quite an answer to that, but it was around about that time that I started to realise that I I was going to have some very euphemistically or suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that I knew I didn't want to act on, but I was worried that my mad brain might make me act on it. I didn't know what to do about that. So one thing I learned, a lot of the people on my ward were in 12-step recovery, and they talked about one day at a time, and then one of them said one minute at a time, or even one instant at a time. So I'd sit there going, okay, I can get through this instant. Yeah, I can get through this instant. And I'd say that's higher stakes, but also it kind of also wasn't higher stakes. It was just me sitting on a bed being panicky. But yes, there's no rush. There's no urgency to do anything, and this moment will pass and if you need a bit longer, think about it, think about it and ask for permission if you want. And you said very nicely just then, no pressure. I don't want to put you on the spot or something. And what I have learned is even if you hadn't said that, I could have said, hmm, can I think about that? Mm. And I can ask for some more time. If people say no, then I say, oh, well, I can't come up with anything that fast. But, you know, nice question. Mm. I suppose there is an analogy that my standing on stage could have felt like a gun to the head could have felt like a moment of massive crisis and like all or nothing but yeah not really and there is there is something around boundaries in that that when you did what you did I don't even want to say took back the power because it's only in our heads that anyone's taken it away from us in the first place but in that situation it could in a low self-esteem moment or if your brain wasn't trained that way go everybody else has got the power except me things are going badly for me, things are going worse for me than they know, I'm going to take all of that on me. But actually, it isn't all on you. They've, you know, these, their environment, their circumstances, all of these things are happening because of them. What you said is, this is what's happening. And in saying, this is what I could do, or this is what I could do, you're, you're doing so many things, you're reminding them of your humanity and theirs, like me and those small children in the primary school. And you are giving them options you are you are respecting their autonomy and you're getting you're you're honoring yours you're using yours and everybody then 
is reminded of their own power and you know in in one-to-one coaching whether it's to do with writing and speaking or just life in general one of the things that probably comes up the most for me and my clients is how we allow ourselves to notice those opportunities that quite often you have more power than you acknowledge unless you do take that time as you say to think about it and go I could do this or I've just realized I could also do this that and the other yeah. And that becomes, that is something that's useful on the page as well. Whereas before I was thinking in these ways, I would have been much more susceptible to thinking things like, I haven't done this book yet and this hasn't happened and that makes me a complete failure. What you then realise is how long every single moment can be is something that I was thinking about in those examples that we have so many emotions and so many thoughts every single moment. And when you stop being in a hurry and you stop forcing an agenda, and you allow yourself to look and listen, that is where the curiosity comes. And that is how you can lead yourself from one moment to the next. So I do feel like there is a lot of parallel between writing authentically and living authentically and talking to people authentically. And I think that's why I'm so glad that theatre background was there for both of us, because it allowed us to realise that you can action things in real life too. You can go, I'm feeling this, I could do this, I could do that, I do this, I do that. You break it yeah. down and you you move forward authentically. And it is that one instant at a time thing. Yeah. Mm. It probably ties up, I hadn't really, until this very moment in this conversation, it probably also ties up with the be more boring thing. I had deeply learned that I'm allowed to be more boring. So I could stand there on the stage and, like, not rush to, like, I don't have to come up with a solution right now. And I will just observe that it is a bit awkward. So, yeah. And and also, as life goes on, we realise we can escape through the monster's bum, survive and kill the monster. You know, you, yeah. you can you can get through things. So, yeah, I, th- I think there's, there is something so real about performance and performative about reality a good director doesn't jump on the stage and say I want you to move your hand exactly like this and stand at exactly that angle and my god I've had people who do but that takes away your power that takes away your sense that they believe in you what a good director does is work out where you are mentally and emotionally and walk beside you as you both find your way towards that characterization that supports these lines these objectives these actions and that's what coaching does is it supports you as you go but it does it from your point of view and writing coaching is absolutely the same that I'm not trying to make people training people to write like me I'm training them to write like them I'm removing the obstacles I'm prioritizing the objectives I'm helping them find that curiosity and that focus performance is a great opportunity to subject your everyday reality to laboratory conditions you see ah that's what i'm doing and that's what they're doing this is how it works that's that's what it seemed to me to be so brilliant for and it's sort of providing your own instruction leaflets isn't it that you make them yourself you go oh look this is how it works note to self yeah totally (laughs) and the same with storytelling as well because the characters in your stories are puppets and you can think about how could I move this around differently and more interestingly or cause a bit more of a ruckus or make things more peaceful. The question that I was going to ask you earlier that I am going to ask you quite slowly and I'm going to ask you to reword if you like um, is the idea with the writer's gym is that as with the physical gym if you pay your membership in January and don't turn up till July not much is going to have happened in between but if you do five minutes a day few at whatever it is a week 
then it builds up and it builds up and writing becomes enjoyably normal yeah. part of life. Yeah. So what I would love to talk to you about is what exercises we might recommend. In I think the, the big things we've talked about, and please join in here if I miss yeah. things, the say the thing. Oh, I did engage the monster as well as say the yeah. thing. Yeah, um, so... Projections, it, being interested. State the thing. Name, that's the word, thank you. So we've got name the thing, which for me was say the thing. Yeah. And we've we've got say the monster one, say how you said it. Engage the monster. Engage the monster. All the little words are falling out now that I've invented my own favourite new word. I'm losing all the other words. So there's them. There are they. There have probably been other ones as well. What's on your mind? What what either would be works for you or maybe what you wish somebody had suggested to you at some point? I truly believe every writing exercise I do is useful for everybody the whole time whatever is going on in life or not I'll kick off and see what you think the say the thing what I get people to do is where they are coming back to writing from not writing and they love writing and they want to be writers is it happening in their lives no it is not is the idea that for five minutes a day they transcribe and transcribe is an enormously important word to me that instead of it being you wake up the editor switches on it's like when I used to type up my own interviews when I used to be on the local theatres magazine way before we had all the lovely technology we had now and I would have my dictaphone and my dictaphone would sit next to me and I hated it I would type and type and type and it was horrible and it took ages but I wasn't editing as I went I got it all down first so I transcribed what I heard. And what I get people to do is before the editor is invited to the party, five minutes a day of just transcribing. And it might be a new version of an existing story, or it might be something completely new, or it might be something that you don't know what the hell it is, but here it is. And you're just, you're turning off the editor and you're transcribing. And the 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 action that I was doing as I was describing that to you as a sort of rainy motion above my head that then comes down through each arm. That's, that's right. how I experience it. Yeah. It's, it's like it's coming through you. Yes, and again, the idea is being visited upon your brain. Right, yeah. So that would be my warm-up. <laughs> so, okay, so I thought, I thought you were going to say, so, okay, so that's a warm-up. Okay. Hmm. Then I would say, if it does, you tell me if this is the right kind of approach. Go I don't, for it. I yeah. But let's say that you, you've done that warm-up and then you take whatever you've written and turn it into dialogue what, whatever it is you somehow got to find a way to make it into dialogue so if it's been some in a monologue you, you you're going to have to have some characters wandering in and out and having some dialogue you're just going to find some ways to engineer some human beings talking to each other around this thing that you've written and then one of those human because one of the things that makes a very satisfying scene and story i think is when people's emotional state is changed that's just a very interesting thing to watch and to read and hear about so i request that your writing exercise should include someone in the dialogue could be a bit like the person who was me standing on the stage saying well this is awkward but i'd like them to start with saying well this is awkward and at some later point in this narrative however long it is or however short that's that same person or another person says well this is interesting or well this is touching or well this is or embarrassing embarrassing one. or well this seems like an occasion for anger or well something an observation that begins with well comma this 
and something emotional, something emotional, what is actually happening right now. And then the scene ends with that line as well. Well, this is much better or happy or this is a happy ending or well, this is a tragedy or something that really spells out what you might otherwise be dancing around. So you've got at least three utterances of that shape in this narrative. What I feel like you're talking about is emotional shifts or points where, or points where the character, the opportunity for character development, which is what's happening occurs that um something i i say about plots to people a lot is what does your character need to learn about the world and how does your story teach it to them and i feel like that's on a similar vein that the character is having to face something about themselves and other people yeah that forges them in the fire in some way yes And, and you as a writer are going to have to think about what kind of machinery do you need to to sort of drive into the field in order to have that effect on them so just to give a couple of examples based on what we've already talked about let's say that you choose to write a story and then turn it into dialogue based on the man who thought i was an arrogant twat we've got lots of dialogue which i've already used which is me walking in and asking people and some people who are not very confident saying some things that's dialogue but you're going to have an opportunity for him, maybe he says it quietly to himself in his head, says, well, this is a waste of time and I'm really fed up and this guy's an arrogant twat, he says in his own head. And then later on he might say, well, I'm glad I stayed here because this man Flintoff seems like he knows what he's talking about or whatever. So, so something about gladness. or So then you, as the writer, have to think, what do I need to do in this story to engineer that shift in his brain? Brilliant. So if we combine some of these personal details where man who is teaching how to be confident also knows what it's like to feel the polar opposite and for reasons of plot we might combine that and say it was all that day you know if you come into that from the psychiatric hospital if we took you saying what you said if we wrote down that dialogue and then we wrote down a couple more people's dialogue those are the facts in the world those words were spoken by those people in the world but we could take that same dialogue and we could write a completely different point of view depending on whose character's head we were in which yes. is something we've we've talked about a lot yeah, today yeah. that my truth might not be this person's truth might not be that person's truth so there will be one person there who goes oh my god he's written for a real newspaper i can't even look at him i want to go and hide under the table and another person who goes god it's only writing and speaking what's that got to do with anything you know and, and yeah, yeah. people's people's own kind of um hang-ups are usually yeah. not to do with who they're talking to or looking at it's, it's a mirror it's to do with yourself so that would be my one would be to pick two completely different character interpretations of exactly the same dialogue and write yeah. the scene from those two people's perspectives I think any of those could just be so much fun. I would pick yeah, any and one any, of those. And any of those option is great. Yeah, any of those. Yeah. Not all of them, not everything. Not uh, all of them, yeah. not everything. Any of that, those. That's it, isn't it? You know, it's it's yeah. about what, what makes you curious. What yeah. sounds like fun. Definitely. That's the only kind of right or wrong answer is what sounds like fun because that's going to get yeah. you writing. Exactly. To visit the writer's gym on Zoom or in person, one-to-one or in groups, have a look at rachelknightley.com or read the programme notes to find out about the creative writer launching on June the 29th.